Hello and welcome to Across the States, the premier state policy podcast, courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and joining me today is Jonathan Williams, Chief Economist and Executive Vice President of Policy here at ALEC, here to discuss the reconciliation bill on Capitol Hill. Now, many of you have heard about this in the news. It's been a big topic of discussion on Capitol Hill. Democrats are trying to pass it. But what is in this bill? So, Jonathan, thank you for joining us today to discuss this idea that's being pushed by Democrats. Thank you for joining us here and across the states. Well, thanks for having me as always. And uh, as I always say, Matt, greetings from the land of make-believe. And it's uh, more that way all the time. (laughs) Unfortunately, that joke gets funnier and funnier, or I guess it gets more dangerous because, I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars of new taxes and spending, even as we're recording this. Even as the details are unknown or unfolding, these are dangerous times for taxpayers, no doubt. Yeah, the punchline never does get old. Washington, D.C. keeps it fresh, the idea of make-believe. So let's kick things off with the term reconciliation bill. Now, it's a strange term because if you hear about normal bills, you know, what makes a reconciliation bill a reconciliation bill, especially when you consider how it has been used to overcome opposition and pass through Congress on party lines? What separates a reconciliation bill? from your usual run-of-the-mill piece of legislation on Capitol Hill? And why are Democrats going this route with this bill? Well, there's the uh, the real short answer to that from just a uh, political reality perspective is this is not a bipartisan effort underway. This is an effort underway to cement progressive agenda items that have been, you know, in the, the textbooks or in political discussion for years, if not decades, and to put through trillions of dollars of new taxes and spending on the American taxpayer without even wanting to have a minority party input, it seems, up on Capitol Hill. And so there's a real brief answer to that, and that is exactly what you alluded to there, Matt, is reconciliation bills as part of the somewhat arcane Senate budget process are allowed to be passed on exactly party line votes. And so at the 50-50 Senate and Vice President Harris breaking a tie, I assume that would happen when this goes over to the Senate side. That is why you see, I think, such an extreme big government agenda and this being done through this partisan, strictly partisan process. Now, one of the other aspects of this, of course, is being done very quickly. We're talking trillions and trillions. We can get into that a little bit. Is it 3.5? Is it 5.5? What's the actual price tag? Because there's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, the text of the language, the House Budget Committee is meeting here the next day or so as we're recording this. The language was just released and the bill count, you know, the page count was over 2,400 pages. And keep in mind, the markup is happening in House Budget Committee within like 24 hours of this being released. So not a single soul in Washington, I think it's safe to say, has read this new language in its entirety. And of course, the Senate, as it exists right now, does not plan to have even public hearings. I know Senator Mike Braun from Indiana, a frequent guest at our ALEC meetings, is putting together ideas to rectify that. But you would think, Matt, with such a momentous bill, whether you like the merits of it or not, and we're just going to talk about the educational elements and not advocate any way here today, of course, that's what Alec does is educate. But whether you like the bill or don't like the bill, there is something to be said about the idea that the American people, certainly members of Congress and their staff members here in Capitol Hill, should at least have time to read the bill, digest the bill, and then have public hearing and input over actually what's in this. And you know, this is an attempt, I think, to remake the American economy going forward, unfortunately. And if I understand correctly, the reason they're doing the reconciliation process is because they don't have enough votes to reach cloture. And so this is effectively a tax and spend provision in order to avoid that 60-vote threshold just to a simple majority, correct? 
That's right. And there's been a lot of discussion in town, of course, remaking the filibuster, stopping the use of the filibuster in the Senate. And that's a discussion for another day as well. But otherwise, it would be a 60 vote threshold to pass legislation in the Senate. This gets around that and allows for a simply partisan vote with a Vice President Harris tie at 51. Awesome. That's the loophole around. So earlier this year, Democrats passed a first reconciliation bill. Joe Biden touted as the American Rescue Plan Act, and it included an additional round of stimulus checks of $1,400, I believe. Now, that cost $1.9 trillion. Again, $1.9 trillion and was signed into law in March. Now we are seeing a second reconciliation bill set forward with a price tag of $3.5 trillion. Double that, almost double that number. Jonathan, what on earth is in this bill that would cost taxpayers $3.5 trillion to afford? That's a very good question. It might be easier to answer the question, what's not in this bill? Because <laughs> there is so much stuffed in there, whether you look at health care issues, whether you look at energy policy, whether you look at the overall spending and subsidies across the board. I mean, there are lots of areas here where I, I, back to the point of, I don't think anybody in town has read the bill. We don't quite know everything that's in the bill yet, I don't think. But a couple of the big points that we've watched uh, when it comes to some of our purview are things like expansion of Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, Brian Blaze, a good friend of ours, had a, a great piece in the Wall Street Journal this last week talking about how this would be a massive expansion of Medicare and Medicaid. This is something that obviously you know sounds great, but it's poor health care, right? I mean, right. it's not good health care for individuals. And so Another aspect of that that I think is very concerning from an ALEC legislator perspective is this would attempt to override the dozen or so states that have chosen not to expand Medicaid under the so-called Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, that passed under a very similar situation over a decade ago with reconciliation process. So this is a follow-up to the Affordable Care Act by circumventing what the law in terms of giving the states the choice. Now the states are just being left out of the equation is what you're saying. In a way, what this uh, legislation attempts to do is go around the decision-making of those 12 or so states that have not expanded their population under Obamacare and now would send subsidies directly to insurers. And then after 2025, would essentially say to those states, we're just going to expand whether you like it or not and take the decision-making completely out of those state capitals and centralize it here in Washington, D.C., which, of course, is a big affront to our principle of federalism and all of us that believe in state control and autonomy. What I find so interesting, you mentioned the Medicare, Medicaid expansion. You know, there are some points where the Democrats do tend to agree, one of them being Medicare, lowering the retirement age for Medicare down, expanding benefits there, in spite of the fact that the trust fund is going to be depleted in a few years. But even though they are agreeing on some ideas, the progressives and the more establishment and the blue dog Democrats, they're not agreeing on everything. In fact, there's been a lot of infighting over this reconciliation bill, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure agreement that was reached back in July between Republicans and Democrats, which has pretty broad bipartisan support. Almost a majority of Republicans in the Senate backed it. Now, what are the driving reasons for this internal dilemma and squabble within the Democratic Party? Why are they having this fight over these two bills for our listeners? both reconciliation and infrastructure, how are they connected? Oh, that could be a podcast in itself. I mean, it's, you know, if you're Nancy Pelosi right now as speaker, this is not an easy job to try to thread the needle on this and keep your more moderate members and maybe some of those districts that are voted for President Trump in this last election 
over President Biden and and others, you know, that are worried about the deficit increasing, worried about taking a vote on the debt limit, for instance, which is part of this whole equation this month. You have the regular budget that's going on at the end of the federal fiscal year here at the end of September. In addition to these packages, I think there's a lot of folks that don't want to be on record voting for a debt limit increase, don't want to be on record for raising individuals' taxes or raising spending. So the moderate members of the caucus are concerned about those items. And then you have the progressives in the Democrat caucus who would maybe like to see it even go much further than some of these uh, current language that we've seen introduced and, and think that maybe this doesn't go far enough. And so, you know, you have to feel for the balancing act that any legislative leader, Republican or Democrat in this day and age, have to do to keep members of their a caucus, the different wings on board with something. And so this is going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, you know, this may play out here in September, although I tend to think some of the reconciliation debate, especially as it moves over to the Senate, may last uh, far longer than this month and may go into the end of the calendar year. Before we get into the long-term consequences of this bill, I want to actually touch on something that it's a parliamentarian sort of topic about the rules of reconciliation. Now, the rules are, if you're going to pass a bill without cloture in the Senate, 60 votes, if you want to do a simple majority to end debate and go straight to a vote, the bill, according to the rules, is supposed to be deficit neutral. It can't add to the debt. Now, the Democrats, Joe Biden in a press conference, was talking about how this bill does not add to the deficit. And they says that all $3.5 trillion are paid for. Now, there are tax hikes in this bill, but historically with reconciliation bills, oftentimes... They do, in fact, incur a deficit despite the initial estimates. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, passed in 2010, was supposedly paid for, but it turns out it cost three times as much as originally estimated. Even the Trump tax cuts in 2017, they were paid for when it was proposed, but it turns out it's adding $1.8 trillion to the national debt over the next 10 years. So why is it that we see these bills supposedly passed, paid for, no debt incurred, but within a matter of a few years or sometimes even months, all of a sudden the estimates are coming back in saying, never mind, this is going to cost us an arm and a leg. So why is this happening with every reconciliation bill and does this apply to this bill as well? Well, there's a lot of budget trickery that goes on at the state level. It's something we talk about a lot, how the need to have honest accounting around state budgets and uh, pension liabilities, as we've talked about on this podcast, and some of the bad accounting that happens at the state level. As bad as it is at the state level, that makes this accounting look quite nice, you know, at, uh, at the state level when you look at the federal package that's introduced. And, you know, for instance, you know, the, the $3.5 trillion number that's been thrown around in the media headlines, you know, we've been talking about it colloquially that way, you know, and it's something, though, that is far from the truth. You know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board had a great piece exposing how the real price tag of this reconciliation measure could be five to five and a half trillion dollars. So a Massive increase over what's the stated cost. And this is, comes from, by the way, not a conservative group. It's the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget that has calculated these numbers that say because of the budget gimmickry and trickery that happens as part of this uh, you know, process, the feds can hide 
in this case, trillions of dollars of costs from the eyes of taxpayers. And it gets back to the the first point that I made here, Matt, is this is why it's so essential for the American people, for the staff of Congress, and for the members of Congress themselves to have time to actually read legislation, whether you like it or you don't like it. When you have that kind of a disparity, when people are talking about $3.5 trillion in spending and costs versus, you know, five or five and a half, when you have these kind of left-leaning independent sources saying this, that's a big problem. That's a big problem for the country. And we need to resolve that before we go forward, I think. So nonpartisan studies show it's going to cost more than $2 trillion more than the original estimate. That's right. Wow. That's a lot. So obviously, a lot is left up in the air regards to the final details. So we do have an actual number of pages, at least, for this bill. But we do know the starting point. The starting point, That's the House, right? And then when it goes to the Senate, who knows what kind of amendments uh, Leader Schumer and his caucus may put in. Let's hope that there's an open public debate around the topic, as Senator Braun from Indiana is trying to talk about right now. And that's just a, a need. But if anything, that's going to add to the page count and not reduce the page count as it goes from here. The Biden administration Democrats are claiming this is paid for. Now, as you said, the study, the CRFB study, shows it's actually going to cost upwards of $5 trillion, not $3.5. But the $3.5 they claim they are paying for is going to be offset by tax hikes. What are we looking at in terms of tax increases? What are Americans, what should they be bracing for in terms of additional payments to the IRS? What will these tax increases look like? So in addition to the big tax increase on individual wage earners and small businesses that would put the rate at nearly 40%, a huge element of this is basically reversing so much of the progress that we had made under the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was getting our American business tax rate down back to the world average, basically, at 21%. The European average is now below 20%. China is at 25%. And the current proposal, at least, as it's currently written, would put the American tax rate on business income above that of communist China. When you add in the state and local business tax rates on top of this proposed 26.5% rate, that puts us at over 30%, which would put us at the third highest business tax rate in the world. Now, we've talked about this horrible phenomenon of inversions, corporate inversions of American companies becoming international and foreign companies simply for the reason that taxes were lower across the globe. Thank goodness, because the 2017 tax reform reversed that trend. We began seeing companies come back to the United States and invest here and create jobs in America versus overseas. This would be a huge step backwards for America and competitiveness with this business tax change. And a couple of the others are things like death taxes, capital gains tax increases, taxes on smokers, taxes on tobacco, or even people trying to quit smoking and using vape products. It would raise taxes on vapor products across the board. And so we are talking about a literal cornucopia of tax increases across anything you can think of. The old Reagan line, if it moves tax, if it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. That's an awfully appropriate line to what we're seeing going on in Washington today. Is it fair to say this would be the largest tax increase we've seen in not just one or two generations, but possibly dating back to even the Roosevelt administration? This is one of the very largest tax increases in American history, and it's raising taxes in many of the most dangerous ways possible, such as capital gains taxes, which we've seen the uncertainty in the market over the last few weeks, what that would do to a potential sell-off in equities and and the pension funds that so many teachers and firefighters and police officers rely on at the state level, what it would do to all of our 401ks and retirement security is absolutely horrible tax policy. Yeah, it's only going to grow. And looking at the overall details of the bill, 
you know, Democrats are tiring childcare, Medicare expansion. There's also the tax hikes. There's going to be more regulation. The deficit, as independent nonpartisan studies have showed, the deficit will explode by at least $200 billion, assuming that $3.5 trillion is even paid for, not to mention the additional $2 trillion that, you know, the CRFB has estimated. To sum it all up, based on what we know in the bill right now, what are some of the long-term ramifications of this reconciliation bill, assuming it passes over the next few weeks or months ahead, and what will it do to our economy? You know, that's that gets to the scary points, right? Because we've talked about the spending side, which is bad enough. And by the way, one of the tricks that I think is being used right now in Washington is raising the debt limit in order to pay for the bill and then claim that it's paid for because you just monetized it and you sold off more national debt and having, you know, China and others. You buy just got another debt. credit card. That's all you did. Yeah, you basically <laughs> opened up a new credit card, right? And it uh, didn't change the financial circumstances whatsoever. But then, therefore, we say we've paid for it by increasing the debt limit. You know, talk about Washington logic and why I call it the land of make believe. This is, you can't make this stuff up. It's next level. And when you look at the tax side of things and how painful this will be for taxpayers, though, we, as you and I just talked about earlier this week, there is a list, a laundry list of tax increases in the package, such as individual income tax increases. Let's not forget, those are not just for millionaires and billionaires, as Bernie Sanders would say. These are for small businesses that the vast majority of NFIB members and small mom and pops across the country pay on the individual side of the tax code. So when that rate goes up to nearly 40% federally under this plan, and you add the state rates on that, states like California are above 50% taxes on small businesses. That is absolutely economic insanity. And if you add to that, there's a funding provision for the IRS in there, which they also claim will bring in revenue. What can you tell listeners about that? Well, they claim that this is about enforcement and closing the so-called tax gap. Now, there may be some things. Our friends at the National Taxpayer Union have come up with some ideas on how to collect these uncollected taxes in a more uh, friendly way to taxpayers. But by doubling the amount of IRS agents, uh, according to some estimates, another 87,000 wow. IRS agents may be hired if this expansion of IRS uh, happens under the, the policy. You know, this is a massive new expansion of government. And then on top of that, you know, this this is, you know, probably bad enough for so many libertarians out there that hear this and cringe by the fact that there may be more IRS auditors coming at them for their taxes. You know, an additional idea that's being talked about in Washington, we'll see if it makes it into a final package or not. You've probably all heard about this on the news was the idea that the IRS could then come in and snoop on your bank accounts if you had more than six hundred dollars. Six hundred. Wow. You know, the the previous, uh, you know, it would be ten thousand dollar general threshold before that would be allowed, and now this would expand the ability of IRS to go in and look at your transactions, inflows and outflows. If your account had six hundred dollars in it, or the inflows and outflows were six hundred dollars, which this would impact something like one hundred million Americans. Uh, a new letter from the State Financial Officers Foundation, which is a group of state treasurers and state auditors across the country, just weighed in on this provision saying how dangerous it was. And of course, we don't need to listen to a group saying how dangerous it was. I think all of us realize how dangerous an invasion of privacy this could be going forward. Well, $600 in your bank account, we're talking about high school students, college students who are just trying to save and earn. Like the 100 million Americans, this is not billionaires we're looking at. That's right. Like this is going to be individuals who are, you know, working their first job. And it's not just the bank account either. It could be things like Cash App, 
and Venmo and PayPal and so many other of the uh, services that people use could be subject to these kind of audit provisions. And so we've actually seen, as I've talked to some of the state legislators being very concerned about this, even a member of the main House of Representatives, Representative John Andrews, has pre-filed a resolution in the main House to push back and say, this is a huge invasion of privacy. He's not a Republican. He's a libertarian member of the main House of Representatives saying this is something that should affect, you know, should bother Republicans and Democrats, independents across the board. 87,000 new IRS agents. Well, if you lose your job due to a tax hike, at least the IRS will be hiring. Jonathan Williams, (laughs) thank you for joining us today on Across the States. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Across the States. Be sure to tune in next time for more of the premier state policy podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.